In 2012, uh, I officiated my grandparents' funeral in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my granddad had died a, a few years before this, and so we'd waited to do the funeral uh, until they had both passed away. And uh, it had been, they had both had been married for some 68 years together. They were an incredibly unique couple, my grandparents. Uh, my granddad grew up in a great amount of poverty, whereas my grandmother grew up in a great amount of privilege, two very different lives. They were very unique people, very, uh, very unique people. But the thing that was most compelling about my grandparents was their faith in Christ. Uh, these two uh, evidently loved Jesus. Somebody had told my grandmother when she was newly married as a young girl that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. And my grandmother uh, said that she'd never heard that before, which tells you something of her privilege. Uh, and she trusted in Christ. My grandmother did. My grandmother then surrendered her life, as I said, to Christ, and then she witnessed to, to my granddad, her husband, their son, my dad, and my mom, all of whom trusted in Christ for salvation. And as a result, I grew up in a Christian home. That's who my son Elisha, who you just saw walk out, is named after. So when I was, it was time to do their funeral, quite frankly, it was very easy because I knew they were home. They were home. But while it was easy for me to know where they were, as I rose up to the podium to speak to my other family members, it wasn't easy for me to speak to them because there was quite a number in that group that claimed faith in Christ, yet I was not convinced knew Christ. The fruit of faith was evidently lacking. And so all of my extended family, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, some family friends were there. I rose up again to that podium. Uh, I documented the life of my grandparents. I shared their testimonies. I shared the hope of salvation. I shared Christ. And then I transitioned by telling them that I didn't have to guess about my grandparents' eternal destiny. And that gave me a great amount of peace. Because of their confession in the true gospel and their manifestation of that faith in Christ. And so I could weep for myself today, but I didn't weep for them. And that gave me peace. And then I paused and I looked at them and I said to many of whom my family members, and I said to them, I don't want to have to guess at your funeral. I challenged them to believe on Christ alone for salvation, and I challenged them to manifest a life of faith in Christ, uh, a life of love to others. And friends, you should know that the Bible is full of warnings like this, full of them. Warnings like the one I gave to my family members, warnings to those who claim saving faith, but in fact, their faith is dead. We can think of stories like Lazarus uh, and the rich man. We can think of the uh, testimony of Matthew chapter 7, where uh, Jesus testified those that said, Lord, Lord. But upon the judgment, Jesus said, I never knew you. Or we can think of Matthew 25, where Jesus says, uh, as he sorts out the sheep from the goats, the sheep being the believers, the goats being unbelievers, he says upon that, that they, uh, these people failed to know and to serve the Lord. And as a consequence, they went, Jesus sends them to hell. And Jesus says, insofar as you did not serve the least of these, you did not serve me. There's the parable of the four soils, not the two. There's the voluminous warnings of the epistles of deception. People deceived into thinking that they're safe when they're not. 
And there's the testimony at the end of the Bible to the seven churches, most of whom are also deceived in some way. Friends, the Bible speaks with a loudspeaker, not a whisper. That you can know saving faith today. You can know what it is. And you can know today if you possess that faith. But you should also know there are plenty of people that are deceived. The Bible is plain. Plain about that. There's plenty of warnings. They plain about these people that claim to have faith in Christ, but it's actually a faith that's dead. And too many friends find that out when it's too late. One of the most important ministries of the church is to make what faith in Christ is as clear as possible. And one of the other important ministries of the church is to not only make what faith in Christ is, but also try to do the best she can to make who are those ones that are faith. And having faith in Christ, make that as clear as possible. That's one of the most important two ministries of the church that we have. And so that comes most notably through church membership. But of course, it also comes in the teaching of the church. And so this morning, I will try and make as clear as I can what saving faith is and isn't. So that you can live a life where the pastor or other faithful Christians don't have to guess at your funeral. Big idea this morning, quite simple, faith works. Big idea, faith works. We'll have two points. Here's the first. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. We'll see that from verses 14 to 19. Uh, James here has been defining for us over the course of this book what authentic Christianity is. We've been walking right through it. He doesn't hold, James doesn't hold any punches back. He's very clear. He says at the beginning, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, knowing God is doing something in the midst of them. We learn that he's saving his own by his own will. He brings them forth by the word of truth. We saw that we then are counseled to receive with meekness the implanted word of truth. But then he transitioned in chapter 122. Don't just receive the word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And then James spends the rest of the letter showing us what that looks like. What does it look like to not just hear, but to then do? And last week, we uh, were considering how the people of the gospel are not partial. Um, We're not partial to our own particular judgments, our own personal distinctions, becoming judges of others. But instead, we show love to all that are created in the image of God, just as Jesus did. But James continues his call to hear and do the word by teasing out what it looks like to so speak and so act as one that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the word of Christ, by helping us see what saving faith really is, namely that he's going to tell us it works. It works. Take a look at verse 14 there. That really sets up the whole point of the passage here today. With that question, when he asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? One of my other favorite translations is the ISV. They put the Greek like this. What good does it do, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but does not prove it with actions? This kind of faith cannot save him, can it? And so, friends, that's the question. That you should ask yourself this morning. Verse 14. If you forget today what it was. Just go back to verse 14. Later this afternoon. Next week. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. What good is a faith that believes in the facts of the gospel. But doesn't live and love like the gospel. 
Can a faith like that actually be saving faith? And so while we're there, while we're talking about saving faith, let me not assume everyone in this room understands that we need saving. As I said, my grandmother didn't. All of the brokenness that you see in the world, friends, from Ukraine to rape to murder, all of it can be explained by that one word you've probably heard before, sin. Sin. That word sin means uh, to miss the mark or to rebel against God and his gracious commands. And that sin resides in every human heart. It's in mine. It's in yours. All have sinned. All have rebelled against God. Not once, but regularly. And sometimes we sin unknowingly. Sometimes we sin willingly. But the reality is, is all of us have sinned. And as a consequence, we then deserve hell, not heaven. Just as a criminal deserves a just punishment, we deserve an eternal punishment for rebelling against an eternal God. Therefore, we need saving. That's what we mean by saving, rescued from the consequences of our sin. And that's the good news. God doesn't leave us in it, but he sends his only son who obeys all of God's word actively. Obeying all of God's words and he as the perfect atoning sacrifice, having accomplished everything, fulfilling the word, being righteous, goes to the cross and takes the penalty for sin for all those that trust him. Is buried and rises on the third day, defeating sin and death. And so all those that repent of sin and trust in him, Jesus takes their punishment on the cross and Jesus' righteousness is transferred to the one that believed. That's the good news. And therefore, the ground or the basis of saving faith is Christ, him crucified and resurrected. Justification is by faith alone, but friends, that faith is never left alone. And that's the question James is answering here. So important to get that context. James is not discussing the ground of saving faith like Paul does in Romans 3 and 4. It's not what he's doing. He is discussing the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith. In other words, James is trying to explain what saving faith looks like. It should change the person. Since the Christian is born again, since the Christian is a new creation, it's not just believing in facts and being unchanged. Going on in the same way that you were before you said you believed on Jesus. And that brings us back to that question that James asks. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of a faith save him? Save him, that is, from eternal judgment. And James' simple answer, clear answer, is no. It can't. As James has done before, he gives an illustration there in verses 15 and 16. He, he says that faith without works is like seeing your brother or sister in need. By the way, notice that he uses a family member, someone close. It's like faith like this is like seeing a family member. You see them in the cold. You see them. They're poorly cold. You see them shivering. You see that they're hungry. And you say, well, brother, sister, be warm, be fed. Off you go. Cheerio. And off you go. That's what saving faith that actually doesn't have worth is like. And James asks rhetorically, what good is that? And his answer is clear. None. It's no good. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, 45 and 46, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
James then gives a summation there in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. No life, no light. Faith like that, faith without works like that is is like a lamp uh, that is unplugged from the wall. It claims to shine. It's positioned to shine. It's got a bulb, but the lamp doesn't turn on. It doesn't shine. It just sits there on the shelf of a dark room, dead, no light, no life. And that's what faith without works is like. It claims to shine. It claims to be a lamp, but it doesn't shine. James goes on with his argument there in verse 18 by imagining a kind of contrary conversational partner. It says there, but someone will say to James, you have faith and I have works. In other words, James may be representing someone that says, ah, this is just a minor disagreement, James. You're more interested, more gifted, let's say, in serving the poor and discipling people and evangelizing the lost and praying for others. I, on the other hand, I'm one of those kind of ones with simple faith. I just trust Jesus. So it's just a minor disagreement. So cheerio, off you go. No big problem here. And James says, no. He goes on to say, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, he's defining the nature of saving faith, not the ground of saving faith. He, he's saying, I show my inward faith by external works in keeping with that faith. It goes on in verse 19. James then imagines his contrary conversational partner saying, Ah, oh, yes, but I believe that God is one just as you. And there, James is quoting the great Shema, would have been known to all, uh, well-known passage to all Jewish background dispersion from the Jewish dispersion that he's writing to. They would have known that Deuteronomy 6, God is one. And so these Jewish Christians appeal to their getting the right answer on the systematic theology test. That's kind of what he's representing. It's as though there was a test slid before someone that claims to have faith in Christ but doesn't have works. And it said on the, on the test, true or false, God is one. One in essence, three in persons, as it were. And the person responds, true. And I believe that's true. And so the person would say back to James, see, James, I I passed the test. I have saving faith. I know the answer. I believe it's true. And James fires a devastating blow back to that person. He says, even the demons believe that and shudder at the thought of it. In other words, he wants us to see that just because you believe in the facts of God and his gospel, you are no more saved than the demons that know and believe the very same thing. Satan, friends, and his demons look at our statement of faith as a church, and they know it's all true. They know all of it is true. Faith in facts alone without a faith that works is not saving faith at all. It's dead. It's lifeless. Faith without works, is a dead faith. And many of you know, I I grew up in the South, in the United States. Everybody down there is a Christian, most of them. It was common to go to church, not just on Easter and Christmas, but any time, unless you had something else better to do. It was common to claim Christ as Lord, After all, they weren't, you know, they're not atheists, they're not Muslims, they're not Jews, so that's the kind of obvious default. And since hell sounds awful and Jesus offers us heaven for free, then they just take the better of the two options and choose Jesus and get heaven. So they then get baptized and then they feel fine. 
And yet those very same people would gossip regularly behind people's back. Would commit regular fornication. Would not be devoted to prayer or making disciples. They would support their college football team more financially than they would their local church. They'd move in and out of sinful relationships and the like. And when it came to forgiveness, well, that was something that they would only offer if somebody kind of deemed themselves worthy of it. Otherwise, they would take that lack of forgiveness to their grave. And importantly, they did all of these things with little or no remorse for their sin. No real desire to change. No desire to kind of work out their confessed salvation. And to be clear, friend, if you're not a Christian, you're kind of trying to work this out. Christians believe all of us sin. Nathan Knight sins. But saving faith is remorseful and repentant for sin. Seeking to do right in Christ by his mercy. And these kind of cultural Christians are not repentant. They do it willfully and continually and think themselves better than the lost people out there, as it were, assuring the street evangelists and the pollsters of their agreement. And friends, I know these kinds of people because I was one of them. I did all of this and more until I was 19 years old and I was confronted with authentic Christianity. True saving faith. Had I died before uh, this time in my life and met God, I would have been just like one of those people in Matthew 7. I would have said, but Jesus, I called you Lord. I went to church a lot. I was nice. I did all kinds of nice things. And Jesus would have said, Nathan, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, you unrepentant worker of rebellion. And the pastor and my true Christian friends would have had to have guessed at my funeral. I claim faith, but my faith was dead. And so, friends, James cannot be any more clear that faith in facts alone, without works, does no one any good. Belief in the truthfulness of the gospel alone doesn't save. That is Christianity in name only. Maybe you've heard that word, nominal Christian, in name only. For faith to be saving faith, it must work. Otherwise, it's a dead profession. Let me just stop for a moment and think about it. If your life depended upon your performance of a musical piece, since you claim to be a guitarist, what good would your knowledge of the guitar and the awareness of certain songs do if you didn't actually play the guitar? To claim to be a guitarist is to play a guitar. Otherwise, the claim is dead. What good uh, would it do to be a baseball player, to, to know what bat and ball is, to, to even be so accomplished as to know what the infield fly rule is? What good is it to claim to be a baseball player and yet not play baseball? Right? To, to claim to be a baseball player is to play the game. To claim to be a scuba diver is to get into the water and swim. Look around. To, to claim to be a pilot is to fly the airplane. To claim to be a doctor is to necessarily perform medicine and help people. To claim to have saving faith in Christ is to live and love like Christ. Otherwise, quoting James one twenty six, there, such a workless faith is useless. I would even go on to say harmful to the testimony of what saving faith actually is and does. 
Such a person like that actually clouds the judgments of the throngs as to what faith in Christ actually is. And in so doing, you cloud the truth, again, of what saving faith is, which is why James is so adamant about this point. These Remember this dispersion that go back to the beginning, the occasion of the letter. He wants, as these people are fleeing, he wants communities of light, communities that are clear, not conforming to the world, helping people as they go about understanding what true faith is, not deceiving people and giving them air-conditioned rides to hell. So, friends, the most loving thing that anybody could do, we're often told to affirm everything, but reality is, friend, the most loving thing that you can do is speak someone the truth in love. And the truth is, faith without works is lifeless, and therefore it's useless, if not harmful. But what would a faith that works look like? Let's go to that. First off, faith without works is dead. But secondly, faith with works is alive. We get that from verses 20 to 26. James transitions his argument from the negative to the positive there in verse 20 by asking the question, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He then gives two perfect illustrations of saving faith from the Old Testament. Now, both of these figures that he uses there would have been well-known to the Jewish background uh, believers there. He he quotes uh, Abraham, the father of their faith, and then he quotes of Rahab, speaks of Rahab, the Gentile peacemaker that allowed the Israelites to spy the land. And in verse 21, James calls upon the events of Genesis 22 at the beginning of the Bible, where he was told to sacrifice his only son. Abraham was going through the command, believing Isaac would be raised from the dead. And as soon as he was about to do that, just before uh, he came upon his son, the Lord told him to stop. And then the Lord provided a substitute. And in that passage, back in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord said to Abraham, quote, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for, I, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, James, in the New Testament, our passage, concludes of that event in verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So the word justified, I want to be clear about phrases. The word justified means to be declared righteous before God. And so uh, James is asking this question, was not Abraham declared righteous before God when he offered his son? And, And James's rhetorical answer is yes, he was. Now, the way that James builds his argument is important because the controversy around this passage for we Protestants is that while we claim that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it seems as though James may be saying otherwise. In fact, just take a look at verse 24, right? Our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends would look down there and say, you Protestants are wrong. Look at the verse. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Well, not so fast. Let me first remind us of where we find this passage. It's in chapter 2. So important, friends. What is the most, the three, I see, you guys are so sick of me saying this. The first three most important rules of interpreting the Bible. Context, context, context. And so, first off, this is chapter 2. We normally isolate in on James 2.24 with losing sight of 
James 1. And in particular, how that even sits inside of the rest of the canon of Scripture. But nevertheless, we've already seen James has concluded that God brings forth his own by his own will. In James 1.18, and we're to James 1.21, receive that word, the implanted word, with meekness. But also, let me just go back into our passage, James 2. Go back and look at how James comes out of the Abraham sacrificing his son event. Look at his explanation carefully. Take a look at verse 22. You see, he says, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And so James seems to be explaining his justification by works phrase by saying that faith and works are active alongside of one another. They complete one another. To go back to his whole hinge of his book, chapter 1, verse 22, it's hearing and doing. It's so speaking and so acting. Like the claim of to being a baseball player is completed by being a, by playing baseball. Like the claim to being a violinist is completed by playing the violin. This becomes, this argument, the way that he's building his argument becomes more clear by the verse James grounds his illustration in. Look at verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that said, that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. As righteousness. That's back in Genesis 15.6. The other event was Genesis 22. Whereas, yeah, we have 15, then 22. So the other event came in Genesis 22. Genesis 15, God counts Abraham justified by faith. Just as James counts us justified by grace through faith in James 1.18. So in Genesis 22, Abraham then demonstrates that faith before God in his willingness to sacrifice his son. So like the baseball player that is given a contract in the office, signs the contract, he is a baseball player, period. He's on the team. If he dies that day, it would be noted on his resume, he was a member of the team. But the possession of that contract, signing the contract, as it were, was meant to play the game. So in the same way, Abraham was counted righteous. Genesis 15, 6, he then demonstrates that justification. He then declares his righteousness before God in his doing, which is why the angel says what he says. So maybe another way to explain this would be to set the story of Abraham inside the flow of James' narrative. Let's just do that, shall we? Let's just set this narrative of James and stick him as the subject at the beginning of the letter. Instead of relegating to just this one passage, we could go back again to James 1.18, where it says, Of his own will, God brought forth Abraham by the word of truth. Done. Completed. He brought him forth. Justified. Counted righteous before God. Abraham received that implanted word with meekness, which was able to save his soul. That's James 1.21. But he not only received the word, Abraham did the word. That's James 1.22, which then flows on into the rest of the book. And so this doing, this working, displayed his justification, his righteousness before God. Because that's what saving faith does. That's what it does. Saving faith, again, is alive. Therefore, it is active along with works. And in that sense, the works complete the faith. Not as a way of completing the justification, but as a way of revealing the justification before God. 
Otherwise, such a faith without works like that is useless. It's valueless. It's dead. But as it is, saving faith that demonstrates change in the person as evidenced by works, that faith, a faith like that, is priceless. Priceless, eternally glorious and oh so good. In other words, saving faith works. James goes on to do the very same thing with Rahab there. He moves from the father of their faith. I love this, what James is doing. He's taking two people inside the covenant on separate sides. He moves from the father of their faith to the opposite end of the spectrum. He uses a female Gentile, a female Gentile prostitute. He uses the example of someone outside the covenant is revealed to be in the covenant by her works, working with her faith in keeping with the promises of God, receiving and protecting the messengers of God in the land. And then you get, then James gives us that summary statement in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Or to say it as I've said it, faith with works is alive. That's the nature of saving faith. That's what it does. That's what true faith does. Like a, like a car drives and an airplane flies. They are still cars and they are still planes when they are not driving or flying. But they illustrate their nature when they do what they were made to do. To drive or to fly. So it is with saving faith. And just in case you think Paul and James are disagreeing at some level, just take a look at James' own words. After he explains what saving faith is in, a, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, he then concludes, uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone, that's Ephesians 2, 8. He then says in Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Christ saved us to show his glory, to show the supremacy of his worth, to show his kingdom. Saving faith works. That's its nature. Otherwise, it's dead faith. And so the work of application for us today, friends, is to evaluate our lives and doctrine. Again, to ask ourselves, going back to verse 14, is this a faith that we possess? That's really the only question of application from this sermon. The temptation, the temptation for me to others that teach this passage is to leave you with a bunch of things you need to go out and do. That's my temptation. I'm mindful. Pray for Joey who preaches this next week, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. My temptation is to now use this to manipulate you to do the work of the church. But that's not the point of James. The point is not to go out and do works. The point would be to go to Jesus. If you if you fought over the course of this sermon, you're beginning to think, I don't know that I have a faith like that. The point would not be go out and get it done. The point would be go to Jesus. Ask him to give you faith, real faith, saving faith. So again, the question of application for us, does the faith you claim in Christ work? Does it work? If it doesn't, turn and ask God to save you. If it does, rejoice and ask God for more grace to keep it going, to be renewed, to be strengthened in that. So let me help you do some of that evaluation. That's what we're going to do now. I'm going to talk about stuff to do, but I'm going to use that under the rubric of evaluation. And so first off, let's just start with the content of our faith. Let's start with the doctrine of our faith. 
Do you believe the true gospel? Not some man-made American concoction that tries to have Jesus and the world. Do you believe the real gospel? The God-ordained, Christ-exalted, sin-atoning, death-defeating gospel of Jesus Christ. Revealed to us in the scriptures. Do you believe the truth that Jesus is your only hope? No mixture of your own works to save you, but only a trust in Christ's atoning sacrifice to pay your debt and give you new life. Is that the ground of your faith? And secondly, more to the point, so we'll spend the rest of our time. Is your faith in that gospel then revealed by works? So is the ground of your faith in Christ alone? Then secondly, is the nature of your faith in Christ working? That's what we've been thinking about. Is your life somehow, in other words, more like Christ for having believed in him, both in word and in deed? In other words, maybe I put it like this. If faith in Christ became criminal and you were brought before a court today, would they be able to look at your life over the past two, four weeks and have enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence? And again, I don't ask that to condemn you. I only ask that to evaluate so that the pastor doesn't have to guess at your funeral. And you are not surprised at the judgment. 2 Corinthians 13.5 even commands us. It tells us to examine ourselves to make certain that we are in the faith. And so let me offer two points of application as it relates, two points, sorry, of evaluation as it relates to this notion of works, if it's working. And then I'm just going to build them off of the great two commands, love for God, love for neighbor. So first off, love for God. Is the faith that you profess demonstrated by an affection for Christ? I can tell you that I love flowers, but if I never take the time to seek them out and smell them and enjoy their aroma, you would correctly call my love for flowers into question, right? So do you have an affection for Christ as evidenced by obedience to his commands? What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And where there is disobedience to those commands, which I've had in the past week, where there's evidence to those disobedience to those commands, is love for him present in the form of repentance, in the form of sorrow for that sin and resolve uh, to change that behavior by pursuing Christ and asking him for forgiveness and changing that behavior? Or are the commands of Christ of little consequence to you? More suggestions than anything else. Maybe one place to especially evaluate your love for God is by also asking, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I love that story of Samuel Chadwick when he was a boy. He goes to, he's just a little boy and he goes, he's assigned to go to a neighbor to pick something up. And his neighbor's house was Mrs. Davenport's house. He goes into Mrs. Davenport's house and it's, the, the door's unlocked and he kind of creeps in unknowingly and walks in there quietly. And there in the corner in secret prayer on her knees is Mrs. Davenport. And Chadwick says 60 years later, I knew Mrs. Davenport was a saint of God because she prayed. So do you love God as evidenced by praying to God? One way uh, I evidence, right, my love for my wife is by talking to her and desiring to talk to her and hearing from her. And so do you want to commune with your precious Savior in prayer to thank him for his many good and perfect gifts, to petition 
that he increasingly be named in Central Asia and here in Ward 3 of Washington, D.C.? Do you go to him in prayer to repent of sin, to adore his loveliness, and beg of him to plant more churches and push back more darkness? Where there is, Where is the daily petition to push back that sin that so easily entangles you and dishonors him? Friend, you cannot love someone that you never desire to talk to. Do you love God as evidenced by obedience to his commands and regular points of prayer? And I'll remind you again that we will show our faith tonight at 5 p.m. by gathering to pray. Hope that you'll join us. The priority of prayer is the nature of saving faith. But secondly, love for neighbor. Love for God, love for neighbor. It's a great two commands, Jesus said. So how is your love for your neighbor? Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Are you loving your neighbor? You have a faith that seeks to do good to your neighbor and the love of Christ. Remember, James just mentioned this chapter in chapter 2, verse 8. Loving neighbor. So do you love your neighbor? Not just when it's convenient and easy, but when it's hard and inconvenient. This is how Jesus loved his neighbors. This is how Jesus showed us his faith, right? The faith of Christ was so compelling in the way that he loved his neighbors, all of them. Let's just rehearse that, right? He loved all of his neighbors, right? Rich and poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile, weak and the strong, adults and children, the Samaritan and the Galilean. He wasn't partial with his neighbors. He loved all of them and those like, uh, those like him and unlike him. He loved them all. He, he touched their wounds. He wept with those that wept. He bore their burdens. He made disciples, which is to say that he regularly taught them the word. He prayed with his neighbors. He ate with his neighbors. He was with his neighbors. His neighbors were not just sort of a bit aspect on the periphery of his life, but they were centered. Neighbor love was centered in his life. Jesus forgave the sins of his neighbors, and he didn't hold on to their sins to punish them. He was quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to be angry. He encouraged his neighbors. He gave food to the hungry and water to the thirsty. He shared the gospel regularly with his neighbors. He, Yes, he even rebuked his neighbors, not letting them go on in sin, not letting them just be conformed to the culture, since love rejoices in the truth. He warned them of deception and those that would, uh, that would be strengthened in deception to, be, to kind of go away from those kinds of people. He knew that it was better to give than to receive. And so he was constantly giving to his neighbors. He didn't just show up to his neighbors and constantly take, 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 and never or rarely give. But he was always giving to his neighbors. This was and is the way of liberty. As James says, it's our law as Christians. The law of liberty to love God and love neighbor. This is what saving faith is. It works up and it works out. Not a lifestyle of constantly indulging ourselves as we are so often taught, but instead bending our lives up towards God and out towards other. Now, Jesus, I want to be clear. Jesus knew this was not an easy life. He was very clear about that, which is why he called us to count the cost. But he did know that it was the good life. Which is why he called us into it. And so there's the question of evaluation for us. Do you find your faith working towards your neighbor in disciple making? In other words, do you find yourself trying to help other people follow Jesus? And if so, where's that happening? 
Do you find your faith working towards your neighbor and praying for your neighbors? Not just your own unique family, but other families around the world and other members of the church. Like even as a church, right, we covenanted, we would pray for each other. Do you find your faith working towards your needy neighbors? And I'm not just talking about the occasional handout to a homeless person. That's easy to do. Most everybody does that. I'm talking about serving the needy like family members, coworkers, church members in need. Do you give of your time and of your resources to help them? What about the orphan and the widow of James 127? Is your heart moved by their distress such that it leads to some kind of action, some kind of time towards them? I want to be clear about this. We can't do everything. We're a small church and I have limited time and resources. We can't do it all, but surely we can do something, right? Towards the orphan and the widow, towards the needy. If we have saving faith, surely we can do something. And so if your desire is to serve the poor, the weak, the orphan and the widow, and you say, yes, I do, but Nathan, I don't really know where to go. I don't know how to do that. Well, again, this is why our church chooses a few things just to give you some lanes to run in. So let me encourage you to reach out. If you want to help the orphan and the widow as such, let me encourage you to reach out to Christy Coster or myself and think about DC 127, which is one of the ways that we're trying to serve the orphan, the poor, the widow. DC 127 has all different ways to serve them. Our church prays for the ministry of DC 127. Our church helps them financially, but we haven't had volunteer support with DC 127 in a while. And there's no obligation to that. That's just one way to serve. It's just one way. But if that's something of interest, please talk to me. Talk to Christy Coster. We also serve the needy by the ways in which we've been trying to minister to the Afghan family that our church has adopted. Uh, the ways that we've been serving the needy with, in the Hispanic community with IBSG, who supports their, who celebrated their anniversary this morning. The point is there's tons of different ways to serve. Be creative. Be creative. Just look around. The point is, if we have saving faith, we ought to be working in some ways, working to love our neighbors as ourselves, especially those in need. But also, again, those around us who need to grow in the gospel through discipleship. Right? Galatians 6.10 says, do good to everyone, but especially the church. So these are just some of the ways, friends, that we can evaluate our profession of faith. And I feel the need to say it again. These are just evaluations. The point of these applications, as you'll recall, is not to leave you to walk out of here with a bunch of stuff to do. It was to give you some areas to evaluate your confession. And if there's some conviction, give you some lanes to run in, which would evidence your saving faith, by the way. This is not a checklist to go out and work. Remember, the ground of our justification is in Christ, not in our works. But the nature of our faith is that it works. And so, friend, if you're realizing that your faith this morning, your confessed faith is void of works, if you're realizing that, if you're realizing that the pastor or Christian friends would have to do a lot of guessing at your funeral, the point would be to not get out and start working. The point would be to go to Jesus in prayer and ask him to give you saving faith, to have you be born again to a new and living hope. So if you need somebody to talk to about that, please come and talk to me. Talk to the friend maybe that you know sitting next to you. There's lots of Christians in this room. So just ask them. They would love to serve you, to work toward you in that way, to help you sort of work that out. If you're having doubts, talk to me. Talk to that neighbor. Talk to the fellow church member to work it out. 
But the point is, is don't just sort of leave this and don't walk out of here on your own to figure it out on your own. Go to Jesus, go to someone and help them work it through with you. And I should mention for the members of this church, remember your baptism and membership here are evidence of your salvation. Right? It releases you. This is the beauty of church members. So many blessings to church membership. But one of those blessings is, is you don't have to figure this out on your own. You have 149 other members here that's sort of looking at your faith, saying, yeah, we think they're real. Your baptism, them, that's, that was time, whether that was here at another gospel-believing church. That's when they say, yes, we think they're a Christian. So go back to that. Let that comfort you. But even if you, church member, or others here uh, are still in a little bit of doubt, talk to someone. But most notably, talk to King Jesus. He is the author. Don't lose this. Hebrews 12. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy before him worked. That is, he endured the cross on our behalf. So my prayer for us this week is that a result of our meditation on the word of truth here in James, that we would increasingly find ourselves more trusting in Christ. The thing that I prayed as I prayed at the beginning of the sermon is that there would be some that would be awakened to faith for the first time, and there would be others that would be renewed in their faith to get out and to gladly love God and love neighbor as themselves. That's what I've been praying for, more trusting of Christ to pray, to give, to serve, to work as we were made to do, not for our salvation, but from it. Knowing that this is what freedom is and what love does. And beloved, when we get to heaven, we'll be glad that we gave our all to him and to others. We will not regret it. Don't lose sight of that fact. Because Christ is worth it all. So let's go to him now. Father, what a joy it is that we can even call you Father. It's only because of the work of your Son. We thank you, God, that the ground of our justification is not us in any way. But it is only the finished work of Christ. But Lord, while you have justified us by grace through faith in Christ, you have saved us, as Paul says so clearly, as James says today, you've saved us for good works. That's what saving faith is and does. And so for those, God, whose consciences have been pricked this morning, I pray they would come to you in prayer. I pray that they would go to a neighbor in prayer and they would prayerfully work that out. Bringing them to saving faith. if They don't already have it. But secondly, God, I do pray for those of us that are quickened about our need, maybe over the past couple of years, to kind of learn to be isolated. Quicken for our need to be renewed in this notion of saving faith. Namely, you've saved us. Hallelujah. That we might display the excellencies of Christ. The freedom that is found in loving you and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so wherever there is conviction, wherever there is encouragement, Lord, may we work it out. And may we know, Jesus, you're our strength. We cannot do this work alone. It's too hard. And we are too weak. And we have too limited time and money. Our trust is in you. And thank you for the body of Christ, your church, that helps us on towards that end. And we thank you finally, Jesus, that you've given us words of warning like this. Thank you that you're clear about these things. 
Help us to lovingly be a community of light that's like that lamp. It's plugged in to helping other people, telling to plug into the wall, plug into Christ and shine. May we be that kind of a community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.